This program is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. Show your support at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. This program is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. Show your support at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview a woman who inspires me with their passion and commitment to inspiring others. And today, I have the most incredible guest. I am so excited to introduce all of you to Tahira Habibi. Tahira just was named one of wine enthusiasts, 40 Under 40. But I have to tell you, The things that made her earn that title are what have grabbed me by the heart. She is a sommelier, and she's the founder of the wine network, the Hugh Society, and the co-founder and executive director of the Roots Fund, which supports underrepresented minorities in the wine industry. I am so delighted to have you here. Welcome to Speaking Broadly. Thank you. So I have read lots about you, and one of the things that comes up in a few of the interviews is that you are from North Philly. And I don't know a whole lot about North Philly, but it seems that being born and of that place really shaped who you are as a person and was the foundation of this extraordinary goddess that you have become. So can you take me back to your childhood? Like, what does North Philly mean to you? And in what ways has it shaped you? Oh, wow. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that one. I do mention that all the time because North Philly is considered the slums. The estimation of getting out of there is very slim. So alive and thriving is very slim. So I mention that because I'm sure that there is someone living in an inner city neighborhood neighborhood that needs that kind of encouragement, needs to be able to see that although this is kind of like where we are, it doesn't have to be where we end up. And, you know, there are other ways out. There are other paths than what they lay out in front of us. So it's rough. It's a very poverty stricken neighborhood. You know, you're living on top of each other. These very small townhouses with lots of violence like Beirut in some respects. In in one interview, you said that by the age 12, you had seen drive-by shootings. I mean, when you talk about the violence, that must have been very scary to grow up with. Yeah, I mean, but you get used to it. Like when you grow up in it, it's not like you're entering into it. So it's like you're not afraid of guns or any of that kind of stuff, but it's what you grew up with. You know, like this is happening. You know where to go to avoid being harmed. You know what streets, you know, like all those things. You, You learn how to navigate. And it's funny because just yesterday I was driving and I was thinking like, man, there were so many people who had passed away while I was in college from car accidents. And for me, it was kind of like almost a culture shock because I was so used to people dying from gunshots. But in college, it was car accidents. And I was just like, wow, what a thought. (laughs) So you saw a way out. What was your way out of North Philly? Oh, education. I was hell-bent on going to college. I had to get out of there. The way that Philadelphia schools are structured, you go to your neighborhood school, things closest to your zip code. And then when I got in middle school, I was always in advanced classes. And there's a magnet program for high schools. And so you don't have to go to your neighborhood high school. 
you can test out and go to what they call a magnet school. So I tested out and I ended up going to George Washington Carver High School, which was top two schools in the city, period, private or not. It was just, it was a great school. And from there, we had a hundred percent graduation rate and you know everybody went to college like I knew very early on like I was going to claw my way out it did not matter and was there something in particular that you enjoyed studying that you focused on I know you you went to Penn State and when I look at all of the clubs where you were president and boy you not only wanted that education but you really like were a part of that school and the leadership in that school I'd I'd love to learn more about that Um, I studied broadcast journalism in college and I really wanted to be on TV. I wanted to do like talk shows and all of that kind of stuff. But it was also around the time when celebrity gossip was coming out. I'm just not a person that really cares about other people's business that much. So I was like, yep, this is not it. I'm good. But while I was in college, I've kind of always just had natural leadership skills. It's very difficult to kind of put me in a box and think that I'm just going to sit there. I've never really been that person, which is why I've always been a terrible employee. But in college, a lot of those things I kind of voted into, I wasn't particularly seeking them. But again, like that leadership would come out and I would just be like, yeah, well, this is this is dumb. I'm not doing it this way. (laughs) So I got voted into being president. I didn't even want to do homecoming queen. And then again, I got voted into it. So I kind of just went with it. You know, people made T-shirts and campaigned. And I don't think I ever even put on one of those T-shirts. But the thing that was centered around me was at the time, they didn't believe that there had been a black homecoming queen at Penn State. And so for years after that, even after I won, it was assumed that I was the first black one. But I think like a couple years after I graduated from college, it was discovered that there had been one like a long time ago. So I ended up being the second. And all of a sudden I was thrust into this limelight and it, it kind of traumatized me because everybody was in my business. Like the whole celebrity thing, people felt like they were entitled to my business and like just watching every single move that I made. What does a homecoming queen do? Like once you like have that title, do you get a crown? You have amazing earrings. Do you get like homecoming queen earrings? I mean, what happens? Yeah, you get a crown, you get a sash, you do the parades. Like Penn State is a football school, big time. And so, you know, you're going out on the field, you're riding in the parade. Literally, they're asking you to wave your hand like Miss America, like the whole thing. But on top of me being homecoming queen, I also was the president of a very big organization. So people were already knew who I was and people were just like, where did this girl come from? Like, what the heck is going on? It was just a lot because with that, you know, you get positive things, but you also get a lot of negative things. So people used to try me all the time. I would have people calling me names because they knew that I couldn't punch them in the face like I would have liked to because I have the president of the school watching me. <laughs> like, it was a big deal. Let's just talk about how at Penn State, you began to drink a little wine know a little bit more 
about that world. And it seems like the seeds of your wine knowledge and passion were in a trip to Europe, but they were also partly just being around wine when you were the heads of these organizations and a homecoming queen and all of that. Yeah. Like I said, it was just a lot of pressure. And so I felt that I've always been very cognizant of being black and being the only black person in the room. And because I was always in leadership positions, people watch you. They're just like waiting for you to do something or to slip up. You know that you're under that scope, that you're representing an entire culture. And not only representing an entire culture, for me, I was representing a whole neighborhood of people who were not supposed to make it to that place. And so that contributed to the pressure that I, that I said that I always felt there. Like, how did you deal with that pressure? I mean, is that something that you thought through? Like, how do I make this a positive or how do I just release myself from the burden of this pressure? I just keep going. Back then, I was a lot less mature and I didn't know how to deal with the power that I had to be in these positions and I was at a point where I didn't feel like if I wasn't grinding and working hard, then I didn't earn it. So it was kind of just like a a passing kind of thing. Like, oh, okay, you made history. That's But you didn't earn it. That wasn't hard. When you come from that kind of environment, if it's not hard in your head, it kind of almost doesn't click that it was something that you earned. And it's, it's a ridiculous imposter syndrome kind of thing, but that's just what it was. And so when I had to deal with like that pressure, particularly from like administration, right? Because administration was always in my face. I was always in my head, like, okay, you can't F this up. And so I knew I couldn't be the only black kid in the room that didn't know how to drink wine or making faces and like, oh, this is nasty or, you know, whatever. Like I knew I didn't have those options. So I kind of had to just like suck it up and people would stare at me. I'm telling you, it's surreal. It was the same thing as like when I worked on the floor as a sob, people would stare like, this is incredible. I've never seen such an animal, like such a creature. Like, look at this. <laughs> I mean, for those listening, because this is a podcast rather than visual. Let's just add to the image, which is that Tahira is stunning. And you, you appear to be tall, but you carry yourself with tremendous height and absolute gorgeousness. And so I think th- there's also like the strength of character that comes through and your beauty, I think is also absolutely captivating in addition to the fact that you would be the only person who looked like you in the room. Yeah, and I'm sure that that has a lot to do with it because I would get that a lot too. Like, oh my God, you are gorgeous. You're so pretty. But it's kind of like you're surprised. I'm like, what are you surprised about? It was such a thing that people just could not understand that this girl, and you know, I was 21, 22 at the time. And it it just was amazing to them that this girl who happened to be beautiful was incredibly smart and driven and it was able to accomplish all of these things and she could carry herself and all this stuff and again I didn't know how to deal with that stuff at that time like I didn't have the tools you moved down to Miami and it seems like you worked briefly at Michael's Genuine but then I'd love to hear about when you interviewed for the job at the hotel at the St. Regis oh man so I had been studying for like ever to take my CMS test. For those who don't know, that's the Court of Master Sommelier. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And so I was working as a cocktail server and I hated it because, you know, I had booty shorts and this low cut shirt with your cleavage out. 
But at the same time, I was just studying wine. And so while I was doing it, I made it very clear, like, I'm not a cocktail server. No, I'm a psalm. I'm going to be a psalm. I had my flashcards and my bra. Like, I would walk around. Everybody knew I wanted to be a psalm. And you can easily, like, get sucked into Miami life and particularly, like, being this a server or a bartender, that kind of thing, because you make a lot of money, particularly when you have on booty shorts and your boobs are hanging out. And so in December of that year, they were preparing to open the St. Regis. So I got the call to come and interview. Where this interview is, is an hour away from my house by bus. I didn't have a car at the time because I could literally walk to my other job. So, you know, I catch the bus over there and we're talking about Ball Harbor. So you're talking about going from downtown Miami to Ball Harbor, which is, I think it might still be the richest zip code in, in the country, but wildly different. So, you know, I, I get into this this building, so I'm already kind of like intimidated because I'm like, what the hell? What did I just, it just literally turned into another world. And I was like, what the heck is this? And um, the guy who interviewed me, his name is Sebastian, little French man, very thick accent. And he was just asking me questions and kind of like quizzing me. And he kept asking me, what another name for San Giovese was. But when he was saying San Giovese, I couldn't understand the San Giovese part because his accent is so thick. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. He's like, Brunello. And I'm like, oh, you said San Giovese. Okay. He could tell that I was smart and that I knew my stuff and all of that. But I was so nervous. My mind went blank. And he was just like, calm down, breathe. It's okay. He's a very, very sweet man, honestly. He's a very kind man. But he, he definitely was on my, my tail. When I started working there, that side definitely came out. The tough, you know, what are you doing? Are you stupid? We went at it a lot. But it also sounds like he taught you a lot. And it sounds like perhaps you got to taste some wines you wouldn't have had before. My experience at the St. Regis, while simultaneously traumatizing, it was a gift to, to start your career there. There's not really much higher that you can go being that young in the wine game. Me and my friend were laughing about this last night. Like, you know, you can drink Petrus on Tuesdays. Like, I've had the most extravagant wines in the world. I would say probably all of them. Wine sales were nothing for these people. Like, money was nothing. For lunch, you could do five, $6,000 in wine sales. Like, I was incredibly grateful for that because I learned so much. Like, I had studied forever, but... My my real learning came from working on the floor and under Sebastian. Like, you know, he's phenomenal some. He's one of the best, honestly. And he taught me so much. He taught me, you know, about technique and like vintage and how to buy wine and like all of those things that you just don't learn from reading. And to have that as to be my first experience as a floor psalm, it was incredible. It really was like to kind of be a baby and just have that be your baseline. Everything else after that was kind of just like, oh, okay. Like Mike was genuine. I loved working there, but that was real geeky stuff. Geeky soil types, small producers, different uh, fermentation practices, like all that kind of stuff. So I had an incredibly well-rounded wine education very fast. And when you say that there's a lot of trauma at the St. Regis, can you describe that? Yeah, I mean, you're talking about 2011, 12. So this was not a time when people were used to seeing black psalms, and especially not black women's psalms. So, you know, I had people who would send me away from tables. 
I had a man tell me that women didn't belong in the wine industry. I had people ask me, when did black people start drinking wine? And the, the problem with it was that I was completely unprotected. No one was standing up for me. The microaggressions were allowed to just flow. The manager at the St. Regis, I had braids one time. It was very, very nice braids. Very neat, nicely put up in a bun. And I remember him pulling me to the side and telling me, like, you need to go home and don't come back until you take those things out your hair. You shouldn't have those things in your hair. And I was like, are you kidding me right now? And I was so upset. And I told manager, you know, I had been there for a few years by then. And he was just like, you can't go to HR. Like he's second in charge. Like, cause I was like, I'm going to HR. I'm going to go tell, I'm sure that this is not okay. Like, and he's just like, you can't, you don't make a big deal. You can't do that. Just basically discouraging me from saying anything. So I didn't say anything because I didn't feel like I had enough power to. That seems like that would go against your personal code sort of in every way. It was. And that was when I decided I had reached my limit. Like the guests were one thing and even being silly enough to stay and accept that kind of abuse. But when that happened, that was like, yeah, no, my time here is is definitely um, on the clock because it's too much. Just the lack of respect and that's just purely racist. That's racism. The system was horrible there. Like just because these people had money, they were allowed to say and talk to you any kind of way and just display their blatant levels of racism and sexism and all of that stuff. And you were expected to take it. It's not like anyone protected you. And that's, that's the part that sucked about working there, right? It was just like, well, you know, it's nothing you can do. It's unconscionable really. And particularly you can't control what your guests say, but from the part of being unprotected, that wound is very deep. You know, like who's on your team? No one. And it's very lonely. And then when you don't have another black person there, but you can talk to, that you can vent to, that understands like what you're going through. And I, I didn't know any other black Psalms at the time. So it wasn't even like I had someone I could call and be like, hey, you know, these things are happening. I was very lonely, very, very lonely. And I and I felt very isolated and it was traumatizing going to work after a while. When you began doing events, was that in Miami as well? Yeah. So I went from the St. Regis to Michael's Genuine. And then I left Michael's Genuine and I became the wine director at this place called Baoli, which is the literal pit of hell. Like I, I can't even believe I survived that place. And then I opened up another restaurant and I was just done. I was burnt out with working for people. That last experience, I guess I was a terrible employee and he was racist and sexist too. And I was just like, enough. And and I really just felt like I wanted to start really focusing on my community and building that up. I had discovered Andre Max wines while I was at Michael's. Um, you know, Eric Larkey is wine director at Michael's Genuine. It's brilliant to work under also pain in the ass because he would just like blind taste me in front of people. It was so embarrassing sometimes, just like out of nowhere. But, you know, he kept me on my toes and I learned a lot. He shaped a lot of, you know, my wine knowledge and stuff. So I'm I'm always grateful to him. And he's a super nice guy now. But he had brought in Andre Max Love Drunk. Um, Andre Max is a black winemaker. He used to be a Psalm but he started making his own wines. And Eric had introduced me to Love Drunk. And I was so enamored with the fact that 
there was like this black winemaker. I, I don't think that there would have ever even been a conversation at the St. Regis. And so that kind of like opened my world up because I used to get that question all the time. Like, oh, there are black winemakers. Are there any? Do you know them all? And I'm like, what? <laughs> well, with that, we're going to take a quick break. Stay with us and we'll be right back. All of us at HRN have been keeping busy, despite working and recording from home. This fall, we're proud to announce new shows on the network that each bring important and enlightening stories to listeners around the world. While the world is in turmoil and the future of our country is uncertain, there are certain constants that help keep us going. For us, food and storytelling are essential. While we can't come together in person, food podcasts from HRN provide a virtual table we can all gather around. Bringing exceptional stories to your ears and keeping you informed on the ever-changing political and environmental issues of our time is integral to our mission. At a time when the world around us is rapidly changing, HRN is committed to being here for our listening community, and we need you to be here for us. Join our table and help ensure the future of food radio by becoming a member of HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate to make a contribution. Check out the latest additions to our lineup while you're there. You can see all of our series at heritageradionetwork.org slash new show. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. I am here with the incomparable Tahira Habibi. So I'd, I'd love to talk for a minute about the breakup and the birth of your completely amazing child. I was really struck by one of your posts where you were talking about the attitude that people have towards single mothers. And I thought it was really important to share with this audience, if you want to just talk about your thoughts on the topic. Yeah, I think that we're in a pretty misogynistic environment, particularly like if you're in a space like uh, alcohol, beverage, you know, that kind of work. Your career is mandated over once you get pregnant, right? It's so difficult to come back from that. Bartenders is a little bit easier. Back then, like wine sales and all of that kind of stuff, like Psalms, it's so difficult. Like, how are you going to do this? You don't, you don't, you're not supposed to be doing this. You're having a baby. And it's like, I'm aware I'm having a baby. It's growing inside of me. But when I got pregnant, father, my child decided that that wasn't for him. And we had been together for three years. And so that was kind of traumatic for me. And we had a lot of mutual friends. And so a lot of people kind of sided with him as if they needed to pick a side at all. But a lot of people disappeared around that time. So 
that I basically went through my pregnancy alone. You know, it's kind of like the shame that people try to give you. You made a bad decision. You're the one that's bringing a child into the world alone. You did this. It's your fault that you're a single mother. You picked the wrong person. Oh, okay. I thought I was. I picked a person I was with for three years. I'm the one who stayed. I don't understand why. I'm, you know, I'm the parent that stayed. But it's such a taboo thing for women to be single mothers. It's always their fault. As if people don't change or you're not gaslit. Like people aren't responsible for their own actions and you can't control those actions sometimes. And I think it, it sounds compounded, obviously, by the fact that being a, a psalm, a pregnant psalm on the floor. I mean, I've just heard so many stories of women being essentially pushed out of their jobs as psalms, pushed to the side, given the strangest alternate job just to get rid of them and make them quit when they're pregnant, which just is not a way for us to move forward as a society. People do not want to see the sight of a pregnant woman serving their wine. Like, you would think that Sasquatch was there pouring wine for them. They do not want to see a pregnant woman even touching a wine glass. Like, nothing. They don't mind a pregnant woman moving the boxes. (laughs) It's just like, dude, do you really think that you love my child more than I love my child? Do you think that I'm going to sit here and if I have to taste wine... And I'm going to put my child in danger. Like, that's the misogyny, right? You think that you know better what's best for me and my child that I'm carrying than I do. It's incredible. It's incredible. Such is the world that we live in at this point. Yeah, exactly. Such is the world. And there's education to be done every day. So what was it like to move to Atlanta, new city, and then launch the Hugh Society, which you launched in 2017, So it was very important then. And I'm just wondering how you feel like about the evolution of like the work and your community building, which has been so important. So I moved to Atlanta. It was a new city, new baby and new job, really. So I really was just starting my life over completely, like almost from scratch, my adult life. Because I had been stripped of everything. I was a single mom with, you know, when I moved here, my daughter was 10 months I didn't really know a lot of people here. I had a friend or two who had helped me kind of transition a little bit. And I moved here in October of 2017. I launched Hue Society officially in December. So I had those two months to like get it together. (laughs) And, you know, I also planned a one-year-old's birthday party. This is a whole nother animal. But it uh, it was terrifying. So I had to focus that that fear into a, a determination to success because I don't have the option to fail. Like I had a child and rent and all of these things. So when I officially had launched Hue Society, my goal was one thing, which was to do, you know, the all the events and the city chapters and all of these things. And I found out very quickly that I had to go back and restructure that because I had to get people comfortable and understanding of that black wine exists and that black people did drink wine. Like I was like, oh, I guess they were right <laughs> in Miami. Like You think that Atlanta might be a little more open-minded? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely more open-minded in the sense, but you know, right now we're talking about dealing with the internet. So it wasn't even Atlanta. It was more like 
I needed to create a space where we saw each other and understood that other people drank wine and be comfortable with that, but that everybody else could see us doing it too and understand why and how this is happening. So it was like I had to create a baseline of joy and community in this in a centered space on the internet so that everybody could see it and build that up. I did not allow any kind of assimilating or anything that was not our natural state of being and enjoying. Like I would post pictures that you just didn't see. You would just be like, and you'd be like, huh? Like, yep, that's it. And I was fearless about it. I just didn't care because I don't owe anybody anything. So no one could be like, oh, you know, you can't do that or that's not politically correct or no one wants to see that. I didn't care what other people wanted to see. I cared what we needed to see. I knew what we needed and I cared what we needed to see. I cared about building that community and kind of sending out a bat signal like, if you want some joy, you want to feel some love, if you want to feel seen and heard, here you go. And then you can go back out on that floor and do those things and deal with all of that nonsense that you have to deal with. But if you want a good laugh, you want some motivation, if you want some positivity, if you want a space where you know that this is for you, here you go. And I built that up. I was really struck by the contrast that you draw between the community that you're building and the existing racist infrastructure of the Court of the Master Psalms. Can you talk about your experience with the court? When you come into this wine space, particularly like 10 years ago, you, you're definitely led to believe that you're not a psalm unless you go through the quartermasters or you don't, you're not credible or, you know, you're not real or any of those things unless you get this certification. So I had went to wine school when I was in Philly. I would work during the day and take classes at night. Like I had my certifications. I was very smart. I was great at it. But this particular certification I was preparing to 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 go through. And, you know, I, I went to New York. I spent the money. And these tests are not cheap. So, you know, it's a two-day test. I go to New York. I got to get a hotel. You know, I, I was living in Miami. I'm like, you have to go through all of these things to take this test. And so I'm already nervous. And the feeling of walking into a very tense space and then not seeing anybody else who looks like you is also another layer of mental cloud that you kind of have to fight through. And so, again, is there pressure, that pressure like, here you go, you're the only one, like the whole race is on your back. <laughs> and so long story short, like during this particular exam, they had made it known that, you know, if you wanted to speak or to ask a question or any rest of that stuff, you had to refer to them as master. And for me, I'm just like, you got to be kidding me. Like, first of all, you guys can't be this like uptight. Second of all, why are you making it so difficult for people to learn? But, you know, more, most importantly, you see my black ass sitting here. I'm not calling you master. Like, are y'all kidding me? <laughs> I am not calling a single one of y'all master. And I, and I thought it was like a joke. And I kind of like, I was like, it's no way that they're going to like, they're going to see me. And, and, and of course it, it happened. And I was like, I was so hell bent on this test and this system because when I started my wine journey, 
there were no black women who had become a master psalm. And to this day, there's still not one 10 years later. Right. So I wanted to be the first. And I was so serious about that. Like, that's why I studied so much, because I really wanted to be the first one. It was such a pride thing for me. I was going to put, you know, my neighborhood, my, my home on the map, black people, black women, like this whole thing. But that moment, those times that I was up in New York with that test, it changed everything for me. You know, when I had to come out with that a couple months ago, it was really a public grieving for me because I had never really talked about that. I had and I just continued on like I just pushed through. I finished my test. I passed. I never wanted to talk to any of these people again. This was not my tribe. Like I didn't feel like these were the people that were going to lead me to success because I resented their system and what they were doing. Like that is racist. And even if it's not, you know, overt hatred, that is still a system of oppression. And I felt oppressed just being in that room. I'm not going to go through the rest of these, you know, levels of doing this with these people that are like this. Like it's just unacceptable to me. And I also knew that the next level you have to um, serve. So the first level is two days of tests, like a class and test. The next level is service. And all of these things are going through my head while, you know, I'm trying, I'm supposed to be taking the test, right? And I'm just like, I'm not going to serve anybody and and call them master. Like that's just not, that just was not going to happen. So I was just, I let it die. It just died that day. And it was difficult and I was so sad about it. And I was just like, all right, well, you don't really have time to be be sad because what the F are you going to do now? You're not going to finish this. So how are you going to finish, you know, this whole wine thing? And so that's what I had to kind of start focusing on. I didn't, I never had time to grieve the death of that dream. And until this year when that whole thing happened with the video and when that video came out, there was so much public grieving, um, so many people who were DMing me and reaching out to me and just like telling me their stories and, you know, their trauma and all the horrible things that had to happen to them in this industry. I was I was a wreck for a while. I was a wreck, but I needed to get that out. You were a wreck maybe on both scores, right, for sharing something that you'd buried and also for absorbing other people's sadness. And I'm an empath. So, you know, I feel like all of these things and I was just, I was a wreck. I would try to hold it together for my daughter because my daughter is a very happy, like super happy child, but she can, obviously, I think all kids can kind of sense when their, their parents are not well. And I would try to keep her like at school. She goes to a homeschool, you know, I would try to keep her there as long as possible. Like I would call her teacher, like, can you keep her like an extra hour or two and just stuff like that? Because I would be crying like uncontrollably. I was crumbling and I I was getting it out. I grieved. I got all of it out and I felt it for other people and, and all of that stuff. And it was just, I knew that that needed to happen when it needed to happen so that I can continue my pursuit of freedom and, and liberty and all of that stuff. And I couldn't do that with that under my belt. And the reason I had never spoken about that was just like, for what? At the time, they were the most powerful wine organization in the world. No one was going to believe me or I wasn't going to go up against that at the time. And I didn't feel like I wanted to put my energy into trying to go up against that versus trying to become successful on my own. And I did. And I did very well at it. And even when people, like different people like from Hugh Society and stuff like that, 
they would be excited about passing these tests or they would be bummed and just different stuff. And I would just always say, like, I never really talked bad about it. I would just say, look, listen, this is not your validation. Do not allow this to validate you. I, I thought it was interesting and I, I believe you said this somewhere where you're you're setting up for your community like the completely different but equally deep, meaningful, thorough educational settings so that anyone who wants to has an ability to have all the knowledge and thrive in this profession. Yeah. I mean, gatekeeping is rooted in racism because you're trying to keep your power that be. What happens when we start spreading that power around? That's that's what Hugh Society is about. And so I finally got to a place where I had enough power and then I had enough powerful friends to create those things. And so I can open city chapters and provide that access for people. I can do a nonprofit and fund people to live their dreams in outside of oh, you have to be a psalm or you have to go through the court of masters or you have to do this, this, that, and the other. It's like, no, there are lots of different pathways into this 40, what is it? What were we on, $47 billion in this industry at this point? And, you know, we're talking about equity and wealth. We're completely shut out of that. The underwriters don't look like us. All of those things are systems of oppression that they're just put in place against us. And so when you start breaking them down, what does that look like? When I decided to go against CMS, people thought it was like, oh, it's Tahara versus CMS. And it's like, no, it's Tahara versus systemic racism. It's not just CMS. It's all of these institutions that need to be redone, like all of these systems, the writers, the publications, the educational systems, the whole nine, like all that needs to be dismantled if you are operating in those power structures that oppress other people who don't look like you. Man, woman, by color, like whatever, by disability, all of it. It needs to be dismantled because it doesn't belong to you. Like the power belongs to the people and people deserve access to that. So when you look back to when you first got into the business and today, which is now three years on from having started the Hughes Society, what do you see? Like, what do you feel like the comparisons are, the progress or lack thereof? Oh, people kind of ignored me when I first started. <laughs> you thought I was crazy. It was difficult to get people on my team or on my side. It was hard to get resources. I funded all of my programming out of my pocket up until probably this year. <laughs> You know, but I wanted it to happen. So now I think when I go back to do the Black Wine Experience or when I do the Wine and Reggae Festival or when I want to do whatever, we just had our first chapter tasting. I don't have to fund that out of my pocket anymore. I think that, you know, I've created enough partnerships. People believe in me and they, they know where my heart is and that it's a genuine thing. But people also understand that this is a revolution. Like, it is time to become radical about what we're doing. And people don't like the word radical, right? It makes people tense. It has a negative connotation, but radical is good. It's just started all over. And I think that I've built enough of my own equity socially and career-wise to do the things that I really want to do now. Now I have a nonprofit. Now I have a social arm. Now I've created a council. It's called the Council of Resources. You know, some of the most powerful wine people in the industry. 
all together and we all work together to create these these things, these branches of access in different cities and all of that stuff. It's it's miles away and it's incredible to even think about because, you know, I was in that little apartment with the baby, but, you know, I came up with the crazy idea to do Essence. There were no black wine events at Essence. There were no wine events at Essence at all. Being a creative and, you know, putting these events on and imagining what they should look like and, and how I wanted them to feel and all of that stuff. You know, it was a lot of pressure. Now I feel like I can collaborate with people that I trust and be able to just enhance other people's lives. Like now I I fully believe that I can be all the things that I needed when I was coming up for somebody else. Or I can provide those things for so many other people. There's something that you'd said that struck me that I just wanted to ask you to tell me more about. You said it's important to look at the parts of you that have healed and then the parts of the, you that you want to sort of honor not being healed. What does that mean to you? I think everybody has trauma. There's not a way to kind of get through life without that. You know, it comes from your parents. It comes from your neighborhoods. It comes from growing up, like all of these things. For me, I focus a lot on healing because one, I don't want to pass my trauma along to my child. So that's always first and foremost. So, you know, even though I had a traumatic pregnancy, I did a lot of healing during that pregnancy because I didn't want her to suffer because of things that I had that were unresolved. And that's that's also scary. I think a lot of people don't know who they are outside of their trauma. So thinking about what that means and who you are and, and who you could be is is a lot more scary than staying complacent right where you are and kind of just being used to being in in this specific space. Growth. Growth is so important. It's like the most important thing that we can do for each other and, and for ourselves. And I know I have somebody watching me. Like she watches everything. And I, she has enough trauma that I can't keep her from or protect her from that is happening to her as a result of, you know, I guess not necessarily intentional choices that I made, but things that I just can't control. And I just don't want her to grow up recovering from her childhood. And a lot of that has to do with healing just regularly, you know, allowing yourself that space and grace to grow and heal and and knowing like you're not perfect. You're not going to be perfect. You're not always going to get it right. But just being fearless in the pursuit of that healing, like, the next level of yourself is just always there. You're always seeking your higher self, like your your divineness, the incredible life journey until you're divine again, which, you know, won't be in this life, but that's fine. I, I love how you said, you know, for a long time, people thought you were too loud and too this and too that. And at some point you're like, yeah, too bad. I mean, like I just, I I am who I am. Yeah. Like I said, I've always kind of had like leadership skills. I've always been that person. And people don't like that. People don't like when you don't just go along with what they tell you to do and you question things and you're outside of that, of their box. They don't like that. People like love to be able to control you based on who they think you should be or their own convenience. Parents do it to children all the time because you ask questions or, or things just aren't logical to you. So you're just like, but why does that make sense? And I'm getting all of this back, by the way. My child, her whole life, she's been like that. But now she's on this, but why? And I'm just like, 
I try very hard not to go into because I said so. So we've talked a lot about the business of wine and you as a person. We haven't talked a whole lot about wine. And I'm I'm just going to ask, I know that you love Pinot Noir and I think you love Champagne. I just wonder what are a couple of wines that you love that can inspire people in their drinking? So I love little boutique wines. So your home wine shops are perfect for that. I've been saying this for weeks. I'm like obsessed with Walter Scott wines right now. (laughs) Obsessed. They're so well made and I love the winemaker. Erica is just like such an incredible human. And I think it makes it better, right? Like quick sidebar, but I was drinking this Italian wine and it's like from a famous Italian producer. And my friend was like, oh, I had to tell you something like, you know, dude's wild racist. Like he's on Facebook calling black people monkeys and like that kind of stuff. And so I had already opened the wine and it just did not taste good anymore. But um, anyways, back to Walter Scott is definitely one of my favorites. You know, Andre Mack is obviously a favorite of mine, Mutai Noir wines. He makes a couple different labels. And I think that he definitely runs a spectrum of kind of beginner to a little bit more interesting wines. And that's why I, I love his brands. Thanks for letting us know all about Andre Mack, of course, but Walter Scott wines. They sound amazing. So this brings us to my very last question of the show. Is there a woman in hospitality who you believe more people need to know about? My girl, Sarah Pierre. She's a wine shop owner here and she's just incredible. She's an incredible human and she is doing her thing down here in Atlanta. Um, She owns Three Parks Wine Shop. Her palate is so great. It would be hard to not find something in there that you didn't like. And she's so knowledgeable about all of the wines and the places and all of that stuff. And, you know, I've just watched her journey since I met her and knowing some of her personal story and what she's had to kind of fight through to get where she is, is is incredible. And I don't think people understand the depth of who she is and what she's doing for the community. Like she's been working in this industry since she was like 18. With that, I just want to thank you, Tahira, for joining me today on Speaking Bradley. I really loved hearing your story and The world is lucky to have you in it. Oh, thank you so much. Much appreciate it. Thank you. And everybody, thank you for listening. And check out the Hughes Society. And you actually also have to check out her fashion. We didn't talk about it. But if anyone out there likes big statement earrings, you have now found your newest source. That's it. Have a great week. And I'll be back again next week. Take care. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. 
Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.